Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm your host, Fabio Molle, and every week I bring you insights from players, coaches, parents, and experts who are ingrained in the world of high-level tennis. Today, I speak to a high-level photographer, three-time International Tennis Photographer of the Year, Clive Brunskill. Clive is one of the world's best sports photographers who has been commissioned to shoot the likes of Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Andy Murray, even David Beckham, along with other high celebrities such as Hugh Jackman, Beyonce and Britney Spears. He's covered roughly 120 slams in his tennis career, which is amazing. And I had a really fascinating chat with Clive and we hear stories from his 41 years in tennis. He tells us the differences between shooting football and tennis matches, his favourite tournaments to work at, and he chats about some of his most famous photographs. We also chat about how he thought nobody could push past Sampras' slam record, then seeing the big tree all break it, and what he's witnessing now with Alcaraz. Last we covered how the digital era has made his life different for a photographer. I really enjoyed this chat. I know you will too, and there's plenty of fun stories there. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsors, ASICS. If you follow us on Instagram, you would have seen our shoe of the year shootout where our followers voted on their favorite tennis shoe with over 25 shoes to choose from. ASICS has won the shootout for the third year in a row. The ASICS Court FF3 Novak was this year's winner, backing up its win last year. Huge congrats to ASICS on the quality and performance of your shoes. Unfortunately, my favorite shoe, the ASICS Solution Speed FF2s, only made it to the semis, but look, I'm happy with that. Finally, I've brought back laser engraving for the Sabre for a limited time. We had this available in August. It allowed people to get their name, username or club name on the Sabre when they purchase it. It was a nice touch. It also helped prevent somebody accidentally taking your Sabre, which I've heard happen on a few occasions, but it's a really nice touch. And if you want to know more, check out functionaltennis.com to get more info or drop me a message. Okay, here's Clive. Clive, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. How are you? Thanks. I'm good. Very good. I've over the years, I can say now, I've seen all the photos you've taken. I see the name everywhere. I see it sometimes in the Getty, in the, on the images, but I followed your account. And yeah, I don't really know many photographers and it was great to bump into you in the Asics house and ask for your name last June. And then I was like surprised it was you. So uh, I'm delighted to have you on here. And first, I want to say uh, congrats on all the great work you've done in how many years? How many years you've been doing tennis? I've been doing tennis for 41 years. Well, so what did you start when you were like two or three? Um, well, actually, no, photography <laughs> for 41 years. Tennis, my first Wimbledon was only four days I did, and it was in 1984. So it's quite a way back. Who was the 1984 men and women's champ? McEnroe won and Navratilova won. Wow. So you've seen a lot of greats and goats come through the years. Yeah. I sort of missed the Borg era. And because I was a little bit too young for that, and he retired at 24, 25. Um, but I saw the end of the McEnroe era. Um, I saw Navratilova in 1990 uh, win a record Wimbledon title. Um, you know, so yeah, I've seen a lot. I sort of got the tail end of that generation of the Chrissy Everts. 
um, and then had the full generation of the uh, Sampras era, Becker, Edberg. They were all sort of my age or just a little bit younger than me. Um, so I saw that whole era right through, saw all their careers from start to finish. And then you had the Federer era. So it was the Federers, Hewitt, um, Roddick. And then I sort of went from that to you thought it couldn't get any better. And then you had the Rafa and the Novaks coming up. And so I saw their whole careers almost. They're not finished yet. But, you know, I mean, some of them are close to it. Um, but uh, that'll be a sad day when they've all gone. But, um, yeah. I'm I'm sure you'd be saying in a few years. Then I, I thought I saw it all. And then I saw Alcaraz. And, uh... Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I remember looking back now. It's the same with the women, the Steffi Grafs, you know. And then you were going on to the... Kornikovas, Monica Selish, all these uh, into the Sharapovas, uh, you know, that whole era and Sabatini's and, you know, all these great names. And tennis to me has a great, the sport has a great um, way of reinventing itself. Um, it always finds a way through. So if you look at like um, Sampras, when Sampras broke the record of Emerson in 2000 against Rafter in the final and he got the 12th Grand Slam or 13th Grand Slam and you thought wow I'm never going to see that again in my life and then when Sampras was finishing and he took his 14th title which was in 02 correct me if I'm wrong in New York you thought that was it that was never going to be surpassed and then a young boy called Roger Federer comes up and he exceeds that and is in the, the lead the whole way and then you see Rafa come up and overtake him and you think well that's never going to be exceeded and then Novak's have exceeded that and you start thinking wow this is the greatest era and now you've got Alcaraz coming up who again as you think the game's about to lose its stars mm. there's new superstars coming so that's what's great about tennis I think I think it's just fantastic sport for finding a new champion you know and you've been documenting all of this over the years, which is amazing. Everything, yeah, everything. And I mean, where? Let's just cut back a few years. Where? Where was your love of tennis as a kid? Did you play tennis? And why did you move into tennis? Yeah, my mum played tennis. I mean, you know, club level type uh, matches, and then always loved it. My dad loved it. He was a big Lever fan. My mum was in Ilya Stasi. So we, and I, I remember the Roscoe Tanners and all that. So I, I know the history of the game a bit. And um, when I look back now, I remember, you know, Saturdays and Sundays when Wimbledon was on and we'd sit and watch the whole day or you'd watch the final McEnroe Borg, you know, as a kid. And then you'd want to go down the park and play tennis and think you were McEnroe. <laughs> so I sort of got a love for it from that. But I didn't, I, my other loves football. So I, I was really starting as a football photographer. Um, but tennis was always in the back of my mind, oh, I want to shoot tennis. And then, you know, I was influenced by other tennis photographers from back then. And you thought, hmm, fancy doing that. So I slowly started to shoot some tennis. Um, so that's how I sort of got into the tennis, uh, shooting the tennis. And have you done all the big soccer events, the World Cups? Yeah, World Cups, European champs, um, uh, European Cup finals, 
Um, yeah, you know, you name it. All the, not not as many in succession as I have with the Grand Slams. Obviously, I've done about 115, 120 slams. But the World Cups, I've done usually half a World Cup because I need to be back for the end of Wimbledon or for Wimbledon. So I do the first phase till the knockout stage, yeah. and then I come home. But this last year, 2022, was Qatar, and that was when there was no tennis on because it was winter. Okay, yeah. So I managed to do the whole World Cup. So wow. it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, one of the best events I've done, you know. Uh, right up there. And from a, a tennis photography and soccer photography, what's the differences? Um, tennis is all day. Football in respect of time is easy, but football is more difficult in the sense a goal happens in a split second. You may be on it, you may be blocked by a player. That one goal may be the winning World Cup final goal and you feel a bit stupid if you haven't got it. But it mightn't be your fault. Then it might be your fault because you weren't concentrating following the game and you missed the goal and that's it. And there's no going back. With tennis, you know, yes, you might miss a celebration of the second set. Yeah. But Generally, match points, you're pretty much switched on. And unless they turn away from you, you know, you're going to get something. Um, normally, we sit by the players' boxes because we know they're going to turn to their own box. Okay. Unless you're Andy Murray and you turn away from your box uh, when you win Wimbledon for the first time and everyone thought, what's he doing? But, um, you know, we got plenty of afters after yeah. that. And obviously, the trophy was the most important picture after 77 years. So, um, so yeah. But, yeah, the, the difference is you're just there a long time for tennis. The event is a long event. It's 14, 15 days, these Grand Slams. They start at 10 in the morning or 11 and they finish at 3, 4 in the morning. Yeah. So you're there all day. Football, yes, you have to drive to the match. Yes, you have to do some pre-match pictures of fans walking around, get there early, set your remotes up. But the game's 90 minutes. It's done. You pack away, you go home. That's it, done. It's just a little bit more intense, the pressure football, whereas tennis is a bit more spread out over the day. But you still have intense moments where you're trying to get from one match to another match because Alcaraz is losing, for instance, and you can't miss that news story. He's losing to the world number 500 or something or a lucky loser. And you're like, hey, I can't miss that. And you, you're you trying to run to it. That's when you get stressed in tennis or when you're hoping the light comes out for a particular picture and it never comes out. And you think if that came out, that would have been the best picture ever. So there's different stresses, and both of them are are they're not easy. <laughs> yeah, they have their challenges. And just a quick, one more question on soccer: you talked about setting up your remotes. You have cameras in the back of the goals. Is there tr other parts of the stadium also? Uh, yeah, I mean, in the World Cup, we'd have a cam couple of cameras in the back of the goals either side, um, and then we sometimes will have them if they've been installed in the roofs for a big event to shoot down on the pitch okay. depending on on the roof system so we have like um re they're real remote remotes they are controlled by joysticks and you can change the camera oh, wow. zoom and you can focus and you can do all the things you need to do 
So, yeah, but generally it's two camera, two remotes in the back of the goal for a premiership match. And, you know, you hope either corner the ball's going to go into. But generally when you do that, the ball goes in the middle. So <laughs> you want the big ball, you want the guy diving, you want the player running in to celebrate. There's a lot to happen to be a great pitcher. But, uh, yeah, remotes are a big part of it, um, along with your own camera. <laughs> and is there remotes used in tennis at all? We use them for match points occasionally, but it depends. It's it's generally hard to do them in tennis because, you know, you're sitting, you're not sitting by the goal, like in a sense, you're sitting by the court, but it could be up in the gods and you've then got to yeah. go and get them. You've got to hope they don't get stolen. But we do put them up for match points of Grand Slam finals, particularly Australian Open. We put them up um, and US Open, but generally, you know, we don't use them as much as we would at football. Okay. Interesting. And shadows, it just came to me there, shadows. When you see, we watch TV and there's some like, is it Madrid has the bad shadow on it? And obviously there's some other tournaments. Does the shadow affect you in getting a, you know, plenty of lighting on the shot? I wouldn't say it's a bad shadow at Madrid. Madrid's probably one of the best tournaments for us to do because they're bad shadows. Okay. What we want is half black courts with a half sun, half black. So the player runs into the into the black, the sun catches him, and it's what's known as the magic light, or late afternoon lights more the magic light, when it's that golden sun just clipping them. The rest of it's all black around them. So you may have the racket in the light face. So we dream of that. Okay. Uh, and Madrid's more a particularly good tournament to do that at. But yes, once the sun comes across and it's all black, the court, then it's horrible. Um it's just a news game for us then because we can't really get the pretty pictures with the shadows because there's no sun. Uh, you particularly find that at the US Open where the roof is so high. These days, you don't see sun after 2.30-ish in the afternoon, okay. if I'm right. Um, so the whole thing is basically a night match for us. But in the old days, you wouldn't have the roof and the sun would come in till about 4.35 and create beautiful shadows. Well, that's gone now. So some events, it's because of the rules. A bit harder. And is there any, where's your favorite tournament to photograph? It used to be Key Biscayne, Miami. Miami. took it away and for whatever reasons. And it's now in in the, the... Dolphins. The Dolphins Stadium, which is, if you know it, the courts are on a car park sort of thing built on. Um, it's 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 just not as good as it was. Uh, probably for me, just for memories, is Australian Open. I love the Australian Open. Um, and then I love Indian Wells. That's great because it's brilliant light um, and you get yeah beautiful weather. It, it is brilliant. Um, great tournament. Very well run. I think the players love that one as well. Um, and Monte Carlo, probably. Monte Carlo produces some fantastic light, you know. So, yeah, Monte Carlo, Aussie Open, and maybe throw in Madrid as well. Oh, nice. Because nice. for its interesting shadows. 
there's a there's a silver lining for some people there. And it, you talk about being on court all day, long day, somewhere like the Aussie Open. Do you have to worry about a uh, sunstroke or the overheating? Because it must be tough being out there all day. You you got to worry about the sun because I actually uh, I actually a few years back thought oh my leg doesn't look quite right and I actually had a melanoma on it. Um, so I, this was 2017. So I ended up having surgery on it, chop a big piece out. And luckily I'm six and a half years on now, whatever it is. Um, and I've had the all clear, but I still go for checks all the time. Um, yeah. but the sun, you've got to be really careful. Yeah. I mean, like I've spent many years on tennis courts and that's where they think this came from. Um, okay. And not not sitting out burning intentionally. You just running around. You put your cream on every morning before breakfast. That's what I always do. Yeah, back to fifty now. And you know, you go out, you shoot, but sometimes you forget to put it back on because you're you're running around and you don't think. You forget, and about four o'clock, you go, oh "God, got to put some more cream on." So I'm a bit more savvy on it now. Um, but you've got to put plenty of sunscreen on. You got to drink plenty of water. Mm. And it's a long day out there, you know, you're on the court and it's very hot. So you don't want to get factor 50 on those lenses either. Well, no, you don't want it on the ends because it might make the pitches a little soft. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like, so you've all, you must have, you've worked at what, 100 and, did you say 125 slams? Not about 115. I can't, 115. I, I, it was 100 a while back. It's about 115, 112, 15, something like that. And, You've obviously taken hundreds of thousands of shots at this stage. Uh, maybe is there any that you mentioned to me before? A Pat Rafter shot where he's re ripped his shirt open. Tell us about that yeah, shot. It was just one on a Sunday afternoon. It was the third round, fourth round, and it was Tim Henman playing him. And I just remember Andrew Illy, uh, another Australian player, used to always rip his shirt. So Pat never did it, but he was playing, wins the match, and starts to walk to me and grabs here by his neck and starts, and I thought, he's doing one thing. He's going to copy Andrew Willey. And he just ripped it, and I just motor-drived it. It was on film in those days. Okay. And, it, yeah, Pat said it was his favourite picture of his career. And, you know, it just was an incredibly incredible moment. You see the fibres tearing. Um, hopefully your your listeners can see that picture somehow. But um, uh, yeah, so that was a good one. Um, and then a few years back, Andrew Willey, the guy that ripped his shirt, sat down and played his shot on the floor, which was very unusual. Okay, That was another one. Um, and then thinking the big moments of big players, probably Serena Williams when she won one of their matches at Wimbledon, a tight match in 2015 or 16, I think 16, and she leapt in the air, just screamed with her legs behind her, just leapt up, and uh, that was nice, you know. There's there's many pictures, you know, Andy Murray winning Wimbledon, that was another good one when he had the trophy in his hand with the crowd looking at him. Your favourite Federer one, any Federer one stick out? Lots, but one of my favourites for Roger was with all four of them, and I, when they came together for Roger's retirement. Oh yeah! And um, I was working for Labour Cup, so they said to me, "It's a good opportunity. Maybe we can get the four, the Fab Four, together in a studio at once." So I said, "Well, we'll give it a go." We set up the studio. It was before the gala dinner. The boys turn up like James Bond, all in there. 
uh, top bow ties, black suit, and I thought Rat Pack, you know, the old Hollywood. Yeah. So they came, I got them into the studio with the help of a few people, and we got all four in front of me. I had about 50 seconds a minute, and I said, guys, do me two things, just go close and then walk at me, but don't look at me, look at each other and just laugh and joke. And they did it, and there was one really nice frame, hopefully again, your viewers or listeners can see it. And for me, that was just, you know, just a, a timeless memory of those four guys. First time they've ever been together like that in a studio and photographed like that. So that was a good memory for me with Roger. Um, so, yeah. And obviously, you know, you know those guys well. You've photographed them separately, studio work. So to be quite co comfortable with you, a lot about studio work is being comfortable with the photographers. You, I'm sure you could have a few laughs with them and get them comfortable. No, they're great. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of work with Novak, a lot of work with Rafa, um, quite a bit with Andy. Um, and then obviously, you know, in the last few years, quite a lot with Roger with the Lever Cup and stuff. And then obviously his early career, I did quite a bit for Nike with him. Um, so yeah, it's quite interesting, um, how, you know, how they all are, they're all so different, you know, um, but they're all great guys, you know what I mean? They're all super to photograph and, um, you know, they're not, they're not, you know, when you photograph, say a model, a fashion model, it's completely different. They know how to work the camera, yeah. but these guys have got savvy at it and they're good at it. So Roger's particularly good at, you know, posing, you know, when you pose him up with his black tie suit, whatever, in the studio, you know, he's got a good look. Yeah. And it's probably fitting now with the David Beckham documentary on Netflix, which I thought was quite good. If you haven't looked at it, it's actually really good. It. I've seen it. Um, it's great. Did you ever ph photograph David yeah, Beckham? I photographed David Beckham an awful lot. I did him for about 10 years. Um, what, was he, what was he like? Obviously, he's so nice. And, uh, great, great. Uh, I, I shot him for Pepsi Cola, you know, working for Getty Images, obviously, and it was a big client of ours and um, great client to work with. And um, they did many shoots with the football. So I got involved about 1997 with them and I worked with them for nearly 20 years. Um, I shot a lot of their football campaigns um, featuring Roberto Carlos, you know, all the big names, Raul, uh, David, Beckham, um, you know, so many. So Ronaldinho, yeah. the, the list was so long. They had so many great players over the years. And Beckham was one of those players that we shot many times. I, I did him as a um, as a cowboy in in Almeria, at Texas Hollywood, the film studios. Shot him there. Um, we shot him again, many different times. Different, um, like a gladiator. We did the gladiator shoot with him. Oh yeah. So definitely. yeah. So there was so many times I worked with him, and uh, he was top top guy. Really good to work with. You know, and uh, loved having his picture taken. I mean, like it was great. Yeah, oh, you can see, you can see that you can see he's so nice, but he loved that side of things as well. I just thought the whole, I thought that my one of the favorite bits was when his wife was pregnant with their was their third kid, and he's like, "No, I got to do a photo shoot with Beyonce." And with, funny, I was there that day to shoot that. That was the launch of the campaign we shot. That was a Pepsi one, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, we shot the yeah. campaign previously in the November, I think it was. It was a, it was a TV ad with Jennifer Lopez and Beckham. Um, I think it was based in Japan, you know, and they were on motorbikes. And I remember shooting David for that and shooting Jennifer and um, Beyonce in the studio. 
And yeah, that day I remember being there when he posed with the two the two girls. Yeah, in, I think it was in Madrid. That yeah, it was in Madrid. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was that was nice. You know, that's brilliant. That's absolutely such a small world. You know, and especially in your world where you're at, you you know once you sort of get into that circle and you've access to all these amazing jobs. And just quick, we never mentioned Rafa. Any Rafa, you know, he's with Roland Garros. Any particular Roland Garros that stands out the most for you and uh, Rafa Fodo? Probably his 22nd slam, the last one at Roland Garros. And I remember I wanted to shoot him. I mean, I've been very lucky with Rafa. I've worked a lot with him. Uh, you know, um, private shoots and shoots, lots of shoots. Um, and I remember I wanted the one picture of him, which was when he finishes and he won, he always used to get the trophy like they do and they walk up the stage and they come up onto that last little bit and then they do the national anthem. But before they do the national anthem, they just lift the trophy and they all lift it differently. Some of them just do this. Some of them do this. But Rafa always just gets it and lifts it. And he's like this emotion in his face is fantastic. And I thought, I want to be sideways onto him. So I made sure I was the one photographer exactly profiled to him. And I was hoping the sun was out, which is another thing you have to yeah. You put yourself in the position for a good picture, but if the light doesn't come out, and it doesn't work. It's not as good as it would be with the light. Yeah. So, and I waited for Rafa and he came and he stood and I'm trying to get the exposure and I, I underexposed it to rim light because the rim light on his face against the dark crowd was beautiful. We, we shared him on Instagram. He, he, he lifted it and it was perfect. He's pushing the trophy and it's rim lit and the, the emotion in him. You know, so th that was great. And then another one that stands out was 2009. I was in the roof looking down and he fell on his back, dropped the racket and screamed. And that was great. But I'd always say he's my lucky player. He's always been my lucky player. Every time I turn to a match at Raffa's, I can be getting in maybe a set into the match. And I always get something or something different because he just makes a lot of pictures. It's just the way he plays, you know, there's, there's always something. Is there some players that are hard to photograph, they just don't show any emotions? Or is that, a, is that a feature within itself where you don't show any emotions, but... Super funny guy, Daniel Medvedev. Super funny guy, great personality, but he's difficult to photograph. <laughs> it's because he's so big? Uh, <laughs> it's his swing and he plays quite flat and it, his head's down and he hits, you know, it just doesn't make great pictures but when you get a good picture of him you can get a great picture of him but they're few and far between whereas you can have a, the likes of the easiest player to photograph carlos alcaraz and now the best and alcaraz is so explosive the way he plays he's four foot in the air playing forehands follow-throughs and you're like wow jesus and you know and then the guy's playing through his legs and he's there's so many pictures of Alcaraz and he's had such a short career <clears throat> I've probably had more pictures of Alcaraz than some players in their entire career yeah. because he's so good like people should check out your Instagram account where you do have even your latest pictures of Alcaraz and he's wearing the sleeveless tops and he's like jumping in the air forehand inside out the veins are popping on his arm and yeah, it's yeah. just he's amazing to really really electric shots yeah, no, I mean, you know, for me now, 
he's given me a little bit of an impetus to obviously I'm quite old now. Might not you don't love that. The sun's been good to you. Know, we... um, I am quite old. I'm quite old. Uh, and when I look back now, I think he's one of the few players that's sort of keeping me really motivated because I just think there's another amazing picture to come from this guy or mm. something that no one's ever seen before. Um, something really different. I don't know. It just it, it captivates me the way he plays. He's just got the whole the whole game you know it's just it's incredible to watch him volley in everything he can do the lot um i've never seen such a complete player so young to play like that i mean he's just yeah something else let's hope he can stay strong keep the injuries away to get some momentum but clive you work for you work for getty obviously do your own stuff as well the private stuff but how does i know some other it's not private stuff I, i i work with getty and then obviously, you know, because I do a lot of studio work um, and a lot of advertising photography, or I did do a lot of advertising photography, um, a lot of that, um, it's it's still through Getty. Okay, okay, um, sorry. But like a client, Adidas, Nike, whoever, might come to me or Pepsi and say, we want to use you. You know, they pick it because you're, it's your style of photography they want, but it still goes... It's still a Getty, okay. you know. Yeah, it goes through Getty. Yeah, it goes through Getty. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I'm actually you're like employed by Getty, um, but uh, how does that work? We had I don't know. Let's say we'd Regina Cortelera on the podcast I've, a couple of years ago. I've seen her at some tournaments. She works for herself. She works for a few yeah. brands, taking photos. Maybe their players are playing. That's more of a freelance role. How does your job compare to somebody like that? Like you obviously have the security of a, of a wage. Do Getty pay for all your expenses? Is yeah, I mean Getty, Getty, you know, are a great company to work for, and they they own the copyrights of everything we take. Obviously, they in turn pay the expenses. Obviously, you know, it is an expensive game. Yeah. It's not cheap to walk out the door. I don't, you know, you, you walk out the door to do a Grand Slam, there's a lot of money, you know, hotels, flights, yeah. food, um, and many other things, you know. Um, so, um, it, you know, when you work with, say, a client, on a specific advertising job, I just shot for Adidas. Um, and when you work for someone, uh, then they're covering the expenses because obviously the images are for them, for their exclusivity to use for a campaign. Um, so yeah, so it's it, it's completely different to to working as a freelance. You go out, and every day you're out there. If you're not selling pictures, you're not making money. And if you're taking pictures, it's it's costing you money. You know, so it's a it's a quite a it's a circle. It's a tough, you know, it, 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 you're going round and round. You've got to you've got to go out to take pictures to sell them. It's a tough one. And if I'm that, let's say I'm that player playing Alcaraz top 300 I've upset him in the first you know first set you run to the court you start taking photos of me win or lose pictures of me appear online and I'm that player and I say Clive can I use those photos how does the player have to pay for those photos from Getty or because it's him or her they actually there's some allowance there no, no. I mean, all pictures are paid for. Um, uh, maybe unless it's such a charity situation. Okay. So, and you know, we're we're involved with charities, of course, and players' charities. We help. Um, but in particular, if it's a you know a player like say Carlos who wants to use some pictures, 
then, you know, we are the tour photographers for ATP. We are the WTA tour photographers, the the official agency, if you'd like. Uh, And so, you know, obviously they have an allowance within those parameters of that deal to give players so many pictures. Because at the end of the day, in the old days when you had the McEnroe's and the you know, the samplers and that. There wasn't a social media. There wasn't Instagram. There wasn't uh, Facebook. Now the players are, let's say, expected by their sponsors to put posts on, showing them in action, however they want, showing brand logos. So, you know, it's quite a big thing now. Um, So all photographers our players' best friends. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure they know. I'm sure Pat Rafter knew who you were and said, I'm going to walk up to Clive and rip off my top. I'm sure they know they have their favourite photographers out there. But he, he couldn't use it on anything because it wasn't Instagram then. Yeah, true. But he still wanted for his own. It was on the papers, though. Yeah, on- copies of it. I gave him a copy of it. Yeah, yeah but yeah. Uh, is, is that true? Like, would they have their favourite photographers and they might go and you're, they know you're there. Or are they too caught in the moment to even know where you are? No, I mean, they know you. you know, I mean, I know a lot of players know me and they might see me, but they're concentrating yeah, yeah. so much. They're not going to go. I always joke with players when I'm doing shoots with them, like private shoots, as in, you know, not a media press event, um, more a, a commercial shoot, say. So you've got yeah. a one-on-one. You're just with the player. And I always joke uh, with Stefanus. I joke, you know, I say to him, remember if you win this, turn to me. I'm gonna be <laughs> yeah. But they don't. They don't remember. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be doing it as a player. I so know, I know. They should, yeah. I know, that's funny. And tell me, uh, do you ever do video? Uh, yeah, Getty do a lot of video. It's a big thing. Um, obviously, for me, for tennis, I can't shoot video. It's a TV rights okay, yes. area. You know, but Getty will do as much video as they can around events, but only where you can do it legally without infringing any TV rights because TV pay a lot of money for certain things. And if you walk into Wimbledon and start shooting video, I don't think you'd be accredited longer than about a minute and they would be, they'd have you out. Yeah. So well, that's why we don't do any on functional tennis, no Wimbledon videos or because even the, it's all the slams are sort of the same anyway. So we can't shoot live match videos. We lucky we get away with some practice content from practice before it starts. But once it goes, I may as well go home then because I can't use my camera. But that's really interesting. I just want to wonder a question regarding uh, two questions there for you. One is, Obviously, you've been around a long time from film to digital. Has digital made your life a lot easier? We, with film, was there always the worry of, did I actually get that? Was, you know... There was, there was two worries with film, maybe three, but the biggest worry with film was, yes, you couldn't see what you got. So you could shoot a great picture of a goal or a tennis dive, and you go, I got that, I got that, and you get back and you look, and you started to learn. I won't say I've got it till I've seen it. It was slightly out of focus. You chopped the foot, you'd, you know, whatever. And, you know, it was hard in the days when you'd have to do, in the old days, you'd have to do a quick picture. It was a quick run, they would call it, where you would go to a football match, say, you'd shoot the first four minutes, five minutes, not even four minutes, three yeah. minutes. You'd get one action and you'd give the film to a runner who would take the film back, process it for Getty, you know, images. they process it through or all sport in those days. Um, and they would look at the picture and then they would scan it, the negative, and send it. But you didn't know what you had. 
And he mm. could, could become running back after 15 minutes of processing going, it wasn't sharp. Nowadays, you have it all. You can yeah. see it. You can send it instantly from the back of the wow. camera and it, be, it can be gone within seconds. Online in seconds. Thousands of clients, right? Um, but your other worry with film was, even if you weren't processing it quick, you would go back. One, you had to hope the exposure was all right. And you'd go back, say, from Australia with the men's final films that you hadn't processed, and you would take them back, and you would have to hope they didn't get X-ray. Two X-ray, yeah. Oh. X-ray could wreck the the uh, you know the sensitivity mm. of the film if it was high for low light. You'd get these bands of white through, like squiggly bands, which was the X-ray exposing the film. So you had that worry. You had the worry, did you have the picture in yeah. the first place? Was it exposed right? So you had three massive worries. And the fourth worry was, have you got enough film to last the match? So if you took 20 rolls of film for a match for the final, say, what if you're on your 19th roll? You know, you had to watch how much you shot. It was expensive to process. And rolls of film uh, are expensive as well. Like it's, it's... And, you know, if the light changed, you had to take that roll out and put another roll in which was higher ASA. Now you just go, oh, it's dark. I'll just switch the ASA, the ISO up yeah, from 100 to 500 or 800 or, and it still looks great. That's amazing. It was filmed before. Did it make you a better photographer knowing how to properly use the camera? Like, not. I think, I think you learn a lot more from the film days. And then when you got to digital, you were that much better because you still knew the grassroots of the job. Yeah. I'm not saying photographers who've only been digital don't know the grassroots to the job, but there is a difference. And, and, you know, you're just that much more experienced in many different things. Um, but with, with digital, the downside is you can work now all day long and all night long. You can work in the darkest light and you'll never stop working until the last player's gone home. So it's a long day. You send lots and then you can second edit which we do at Getty Images, we second edit at the end of the day, any other pictures and suck the last images out of the whole day, which we haven't sent live to our editors um, for, you know, just more content. So it's just so much content. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the days of film, you would maybe, after a week's tennis event, you'd maybe do two sheets of 20, okay. a sheet of 20 slides, red dots they were called, or double red dots, the best pictures. And you would maybe do 40 from a week's event at max, maybe 20, maybe 40 or 30. And they would be duplicated and then sent in sheets to magazines around the world. And they had to be posted okay. or freighted. So nowadays there's none of that. So yeah, there's there's pluses and minuses for both. How, how many through Wimbledon, let's say from or any slam from day one to fourteen? How many how many photographs do you think you take? Well, in the old days, you'd probably shoot two hundred rolls of film in a slam, maybe two fifty. Nowadays, you're shooting. Well, there was thirty six frames on a roll, and that was your other issue. Was the roll going to run out during a picture? So you're on 32 yeah. and McEnroe falls on his knees in front of you and you go, D -d 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 -d, stop, you know? So you're always getting to 30 going, I better take this roll Is that out. why they have two cameras sometimes? Yeah, exactly. But um, you, you used to always have a second camera, but you'd have the wrong lens on. Oh, okay. That was something 
different. But um, nowadays, you're probably shooting three to 5,000 images a day. And if you divide that by 36, it's a lot more film. Yeah. A lot more than the film you would have shot, frame-wise. That's crazy. That's cr absolutely crazy. And last question, from being around all these great tennis players over the years, is there anything that you've learned, any common... Anything common between them all that stands out, what makes them so special? Or anything you can point out between any particular player? I think it's just sports stars. I mean, I think just being around sports stars for the last 40 years, 41 years, you know, high-end, you know, the best there is, you know, you learn, you pick things up, you know, from their habits, the way they play, or the way, you know, that's one of the key things to knowing where the next picture might come, what they might do. Um, and then uh, you learn from, I like their philosophies. I listen, I listen to them talking. I, I listen to, I watch the way they train, um, and their habits, like, you know, if they're OCD slightly, like Rafa with his bottles, whatever, you look at the details in these, these people and, and you pick things up for yourself. You know, I, I just, I just think they all have an ethic of hard work. All sports stars work really hard. There's very few that do nothing and still can be the best, you know? And um, so hard work, you, you, you see, and then just never give up. You know, they don't give up. It's like they can be 6-0, 6-0, And you know that Rafa Nadal would not give up and say, I've lost this match. He will fight until the last ball's played. And they're all pretty much like that. Most of them will not give up. They're, they get the bit between their teeth and they come back, you know, and there's never-say-die attitude, you know. It's like... They should really be the, the never give up rankings, not the ATP to a rankings. This is like, I think they're just yeah. they're bigger fighters and they're bigger, you know, that's, I think that's what separates a lot of them. You're right. Uh, that's what separates the pros from the amateurs, you know, yeah. like, the hunger. They're just, they're just a different league uh, from footballers to tennis players. They're from uh, athletes, you know, like track and field. They're a different league of people. They're just like special people. Yeah, you know? I agree. Clive, that was really interesting. I really enjoyed that chat. Uh, thank you very much. And you're off now to the WH Tour Finals in Mexico. So I'm sure you get loads of nice light down there. Yeah, I've got Cancun coming up. Hopefully it's not going to be a stormy week. You know, they do have the sort of rainy season and, okay. and, and cyclone season, I think, now. So we've got Cancun for two weeks and then it's to Turin for the men's for another week and a half doing the official group shot and then obviously shoot the event and then on to Malaga for ITF for the Davis Cup uh, finals, which I hope Great Britain can win and we can witness them winning again like we did in 2015, I think it was. I just remember the Murray Lobb. That's all I remembered. The Murray Lobb yeah, on match it. point. I was right in that corner. I was right in that corner. Couldn't Great. You better. know where to stand. Nobody knows better where to stand the I'll, tennis. I'll send you the photo. I'll send you the photo of him when he went on the back of all the players and they lifted him up. Nice. It was really nice. Well, Clive, yeah. thank you. Thank you very much. And I will see you in the future at some stage. Yeah, no, great. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Clive. I really did. It was great to speak to such a renowned photographer. And I'm sure you've seen many of his great photos before, but you may not know it was him. I'm going to be sharing some of them over on our Instagram account or the Functional Tennis Podcast Instagram account. So check them out there. 
Other than that, I'll be back next week and we have Matt Little back on. Matt has been on the podcast a long time ago now and he is the strength and conditioning coach of Andy Murray and I have an awesome chat with him. We touch on a lot of great things, especially programming for tennis players, how they construct their tennis training and I thought it was really insightful. So we'll be back next week with that. Hope you have a great rest of the week and thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye.